Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband Josh wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in First Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show. Or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit. We open our hearts. We clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way. And then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this, this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place. Um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. somebody who coming to faith would make a huge difference in the spread of the gospel. Right? Maybe it's somebody in entertainment who um, coming to faith would influence thousands, hundreds of thousands. Or somebody maybe just completing their PhD in... um, evolutionary biology, who have been antagonistic, publicly so, to the gospel, to belief in God, to belief in um, first causes, and who coming to faith would have a lifetime of using their education to push back against what formerly they believed. Got somebody in mind? Maybe it's somebody like uh, Richard Dawkins or Sam Miller 
if you're familiar with those names. Uh, maybe it's... Uh, I have a friend who has uh, Madonna on his daily prayer list. We're going to talk about somebody like that today. Somebody whose um, conversion had changed the face of Christianity in the Western world. Within the space of um, about ten years, the entire orientation of the new church had shifted outward in ways that they had not previously even thought about expanding. We're going to look in Acts chapter 9, uh, continuing our conversation. I feel a bit loud up here. Do you mind turning me down just a little bit? Thank you. Um, the, the character, you already know the story, undoubtedly, if you've been following along, is the, uh, Saul, whose name would become more popularized as Paul uh, as he moves from his Jewish identity to his Greek identity or his... Uh, Gentile identity, Saul being Hebrew and Paul being the name that he was known in the Gentile world, in the, in the, in the so-called secular world. Um, and so we'll just walk through this chapter 9 of, of the book of Acts. Again, we're going to read a chunk of scripture today. I'm just going to make a quick snapshot comments on a few bits and pieces of it. But I want you to, I want you to kind of get in your head kind of how we start and then how this ends. Um, because I think there's something here for us that we need to kind of pay some close attention to. We first come across this guy as he is a young man uh, recently minted in the Sanhedrin in, in the courts. He's in Jerusalem. He is uh, taking advanced studies under Rabbi Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis of his day. Uh, whose name, by the way, is well attested in extra-biblical sources as one of the leading proponents of rabbinic Judaism and the shaper of how Judaism is going to take its form uh, in, in the next decades uh, as Jerusalem uh, is, is damaged and destroyed, the temple system is eradicated. Uh, so non-temple Judaism or rabbinic Judaism, is going to take its shape from Paul's, Saul's primary mentor, Gamaliel. All right? Uh, this is who he is. And, 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 and we first come across him as he is holding the, the cloaks of those uh, and approving those who stone Stephen. So this is, this is where we first come in contact with him. All right? So we pick it, out and pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 9. Meanwhile, uh, we'll just read it along together. Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for him letters of introduction to the synagogues in Damascus now, because he's aware that the gospel message is spread up there, so that if he found there any who belonged to the way, this was how Christians were known, the people who were followers in the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. But as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from the heavens flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? This is not a declaration of faith. It's simply 
a recognition of one's humility in the face of a superior. Lord here isn't any designation of, of the voice as God, but he is honoring uh, the power that brought this to happen. So he has been knocked off his horse. He's on his face. He hears a voice from the heavens. Who are you, Lord, is his question. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. How many of you have had a bad day? This is the worst of Paul's bad days. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The guy who just knocked you off your horse... The guy who thunders from the heavens, the guy who can flame brighter than lightning at the dawn of the day, that's me. And you're on the wrong side, not only of history, but of reality. Right? Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I want to just sit here for just a minute. Because as Paul is breathing out these murderous threats... He's continuing in the pattern that he learned as he watched them stone Stephen. And now, on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians to take them back for trial of, for heresy in Jerusalem, Saul hears this message. Why do you persecute me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. This day is taking that downward turn. But here's the deal. When you hit bottom and bounce, your life is recalibrated. This is the beginning of the beginning for Saul. Everything that he has known before, his entire history, if you can imagine as he is, as he is blinded here for what will come up to close to three days, his entire life is flashing before his eyes. He is recognizing that any day after this day is a good day. If I don't die on this day, any day is a good day. So when he hears the voice, go to Jerusalem and I will show and you will be told what you must do. Paul knows, Saul knows that there's another day to come. Does that make sense? That I'm not going to die here on the roadside on the way to Damascus. I'm not going to die today. So he goes into Jerusalem. The voice who has the power to knock him off his horse, is, it is reasonable to obey that voice. Right? You'll notice that at this moment, Paul is not arguing. Saul is not arguing with the voice. What do you mean go, to Jerusalem, go, into, go into the city? What do you mean? No, no, no. Go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So... The men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless, because they'd heard the sound, but they didn't see anybody. Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink. Please notice, the voice didn't tell him not to eat or drink. Paul at this stage, Saul at this stage of his journey is unwilling to do anything but what he has been told to do. What was he told to do? Go into Damascus and wait. Nothing about eating and drinking. Cool. I'm going to go. I'm going to wait. I'm making a big deal of a minor point. 
But I want you to think about what it meant as we move forward. Because look at what happens next. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. Please notice, this is characteristic of, of his life. This, yes, Lord, is not simply recognition that he has been addressed by God in his response to him, but a, a, a set of his heart that orients him to receive whatever it is that God has got for him. Why? Do, why? But look at, no, back up, sorry, Miguel. Look at what he's called. He's a what? A disciple. Guess what that means? A disciple wakes in the middle of the night with a yes, Lord, on his lips. A disciple lives every day of his life with a yes, Lord, in his heart. This is what marks and makes a disciple. By the way, if you want a quick and dirty test to see how you're doing on the discipleship continuum, how often is your life characterized by a yes, Lord? This is the mark for Ananias. Now, please notice, he's not brainless in his yes. So he goes on. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So again, please notice how carefully the Lord is structuring the pattern of Saul's conversion. He has already prepared Saul for Ananias's yes before Ananias has given it. He's had a vision, somebody like you, with your name actually looking a whole lot like you, is going to come. You have an appointment. I've, I've sent your bona fides on, a, on ahead. Your CV is going to on, on ahead, and he is waiting in the dark for you to show up. Okay? Now, please notice what happens. Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority... I love how Ananias, even though he's a disciple with a yes in his heart, is not above self-protection. Right? We're going to have this conversation. Please notice that discipleship is not mindless. It is not heartless. It is not rigid. It is relational. So Ananias here is simply... Do you really know what you're doing? I love how anybody else feel it necessary sometimes to inform the Lord of things which are patently obvious, right? Lord, um, you're not probably aware of this, but I've heard many reports about this man. So you might want to write this down and reconsider the mission here, right? He's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name, among whom would be uh, me. Right? But then he goes on. The Lord said to Ananias, Go. Listen to this. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And then this. I'm going to ask you to just hang on to this one for a minute. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
A couple of things just quickly to underline. This man is my chosen instrument. Paul, Saul, as we have been aware, comes from Damascus, or excuse me, comes from, from Tarsus in, in, in the southern part of Turkey. He has been born a free Roman citizen. His father was granted citizenship as a result of his service to Caesar in Caesar's campaigns. In all likelihood, Paul's father tented the armies of Rome, was a Gentile who was grant, or excuse me, a non-citizen of Rome who was granted citizenship because of his service of Caesar and of his armies. Which means then that Paul, Saul, is a born citizen of Rome. However, he has been raised as a Jew and showed promise early in his life for the academic life of Judaism, and so is sent to Jerusalem to study. This is not nothing. This is Harvard. This is Princeton. This is, this is Oxford. This is Cambridge. Whatever is at the top of your list of academic preparation, that's where Paul has been sent to study. He's not a slouch. Please notice, by the time he has become my chosen instrument, he is already fluent, likely, in five languages. Latin. He's a Roman citizen and able to argue law in the courts of Rome. Greek. It's the language of the street, the language of commerce, the language of Hellenism, the language of culture. Hebrew. He is a Jewish man, fluent in the original languages of the Old Testament, so much so that he has memorized, by this stage in his learning, he has memorized the entire Old Testament word for word in Hebrew. An Aramaic, at the very least, capable of discussing and working in the language of the street. All I want to say is, when God is looking for... Who can I... Who... Let's... You've you, you seen the Auto Trader commercial? Do y'all know what I'm talking about? The Auto Trader commercial comes on, right? And it's all these hundreds of thousands of cars driving, right? And then the guy types in a search engine and, and specifies various things. New, used, you know, color, make, model, money. And by the time we're all done, there's one car that shows up in his driveway. That's this guy. Who can I take? I need somebody. I need somebody. This, didn't, this isn't, by the way, how it actually happened. <laughs> but I'm thinking if it was like an auto trader commercial, it would look something. I need somebody. I need somebody who's fluent in Judaism who can understand what Christianity is in its relational and rootedness to Judaism. So we need an expert in Judaism who gets the sacrificial system forwards and backwards and upside down. Oh, okay. So, so a bunch of cars fall. Now I need somebody who is fluent in all the languages of the Roman Empire. 
Now I need somebody who will be highly regarded in every Jewish synagogue that he goes into, not simply because of his familiarity with Judaism, but because he is zealous for Judaism. I need, actually, really, to be honest, I need a Pharisee. Somebody whose loyalties to Judaism will not be questioned, even though they're going to be questioned. I need somebody like that. And frankly, it would really be helpful if I had a Roman citizen. Because those guys can get in and out of places that non-citizens can't get in and out of. Ideally, it would be better if he hadn't even been born in Jerusalem. That's the ideal. So you can see all the angels doing the calculus, and finally, out pops Saul on his way to Damascus, pulling into the driveway, right? And, and, and you can see the poor angel that says, well, we got a guy. But he's on the wrong team. He doesn't believe in you. And the Lord says, that's not a disqualifier. I can work with this. Give me three days. Right? And that's the image. This is my chosen instrument. All of the things that would disqualify him from being a good Christian are things that I can use for my mission. With me? But it's going to cost him something. This man is going to be turned inside out by what I'm sending him to do. I'm going to show him because I don't want mindlessness. I want relational discipleship. So I'm going to show him what he has to suffer if he says yes. With me? So here he goes. Juan, Miguel, thank you. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. Look at this. He said, what? Brother Saul. I love this guy. He embraces his enemy. Oh, by the way, that's what disciples do. As brother. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. How many of you are starting to recognize a theme? The book of Acts is a book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So be filled with the Spirit. Why? And then immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now notice what happens next. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus at once. He began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the one who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. 
After many days had gone by, the Jews turned, conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch in the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. I wish we could spend some time on here. Apparently the things that he must suffer in my name start right away. Death threats that are going to be actualized. Watching as he leaves the city, leaves the protection of the city to ambush him on the road. They're watching. So they let him down in the basket overnight. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't have an Ananias to vouch for him. He tried to join the disciples. They're afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple, thinking it was some kind of subterfuge, right? Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he talked and debated now with the Grecian Jews, the Greek speakers, who were Jewish. Hello. Check the box. Speaking boldly in the name of the Lord, talking and debating with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. This story is told three times in the book of Acts. The reason I emphasize that is because when we look at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in terms of the text of Scripture, there's a boatload of things that I wish had been included. Anybody else? Stuff that you really would have been helpful to know. Like, how are we supposed to do church? It, it would have been nice if the Holy Spirit had thought to give us a book about that. And it's frustrating to me at some level when he takes precious ink and tells the same story three times. That really bothers me. Any, just me. Okay, fine. But that also tells us what he thinks is important as opposed to what I think are important. Apparently, how to do church isn't all that big a deal. We can figure that out as we go along, as long as we're filled with the Spirit. But this story is important, and you know why. It's because if Paul had not said yes on that Damascus road, none of us would be sitting here today. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, among whom most of us are included. Because Paul said yes to the suffering that he would have to endure. We sit here in this middle school gym today. And tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, indeed over the history of the world, billions of men and women have embraced the cause of Christ because of the wisdom of God in knocking Paul off his horse. What do we do with this? I just want to underline something quickly. God is not looking for another Saul. He already has one of those who did his job really, really well. But he is looking for another you. Maybe you'll be somebody like a Saul who is strategically significant in the kingdom. 
Maybe even you are here today and you have come with friends and you are coming skeptical, maybe even angry, maybe even frustrated with some of the things that I'm saying. And you're trying to sort out what in the world this whole Christian faith thing is all about. And you read the story of somebody just like you who has used his intelligence, used his wisdom, used his education for the wrong side of history. And today, perhaps God is willing to say to you, do I really have to knock you off your horse? Because I can do that if I have to. But would you come because I ask? And take all of that wisdom, all of that intellect, all of that education, all of that training, all of that skepticism, all of that cynicism, and start to use it to say yes to Jesus. You have no idea what good you might do with that simple start of a yes. You don't know. You don't know. This is one of the reasons why I'm so frustrated with so much of my faith growing up, which was an anti-intellectualized faith. I'm not opposed to the experiences of the Spirit. In fact, I, 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 I thrive on the life of the Spirit. But let's be candid, friends. Jesus didn't just save dumb people, uneducated people. He saved really, really smart people, too. Now, that's not why they got saved. It's that now they're saved, now they're in, now they're disciples. Let's take advantage of that Ph.D. Let's not waste it. Do you see what, where I'm going with that? So, not everybody is going to be strategically significant in the kingdom. I, I spent a lot of my life with, with uh, 18 to 22-year-olds saying, you know, what am I supposed to do with my life? What's God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? Anybody resonate with any of that? Right? And the problem, of course, is that in the New Testament particularly, we have kind of a Cliff's Notes version of the heroes of faith. But from that, we conclude that everybody needs to get knocked off their horse on the way to Damascus. Everybody needs a divine vision. Everybody needs a specific spoken word. Everybody needs to be told in advance how much they must suffer in Je for Jesus' sake. No, 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 no. That's Paul. We got him taken care of. That box is checked. It's very possible that the, by far the majority of us, including me in the room will never hear with specificity what God wants you to do. That happened to him? A couple of three times, and the rest of the time, he was going through his life trying to figure it out like you and I do. Is anybody frustrated by that? We are, aren't we? We want specificity so that we have the right to say no. But if you will wake up every morning with a yes, Lord, it might be that that's all you need to say every morning. But maybe one morning when you make up, wake up with a yes, Lord, you'll get an Ananias kind of an experience. Where he says to you, I need you to go over to 7-Eleven and talk to the clerk behind the... Or I need you to talk to that co-worker in the cubicle over. I need you to... Do something out of your comfort zone. Something that would perhaps even put you at risk. I need you to do that because you have woken up with the yes. You respond. 
Yeah? Some of us will be... By the way, Ananias is never heard from again. Anybody glad he said yes? Of course we are. Maybe some of us are like that. Just one yes turns the trajectory of somebody's life. Do you see? Now, it's not that Ananias was nothing and nobody thereafter. It's just that we don't know his story. And by God, we want people to know our story. Is it enough for you that Jesus knows your story? Is that enough? Because if it is, then that one yes is good enough. Because it comes in a lifetime of yeses that marks discipleship. Yeah? Or maybe you'll be like Barnabas. He just kind of shows up here on the scene. Barnabas is kind of the, kind of the guy that is the guy. You know what I mean by that? He's the, he's the networker. He's the, he's the, you know, I, I know somebody. I, I think maybe, I, let me introduce you. Come on, come on. And, and, and he's, he's the rabbi. He's the, he's the guy with the arm around the shoulder. He's the guy that Paul, for the earliest part of his life, said, I'm with him. Right? As long as you're with Barnabas, you're in. Why? Because Barnabas has got a network throughout the entire Roman Empire for some reason. Early church history suggests that he was a multinational business person with branch offices in four or five different cities in the Roman Empire, very much like Ananias and Sapphira, who had a tent-making business in three major centers, Rome and, and um, Antioch and Ephesus. We don't know that for sure, but I think that that's fascinating to me because Barnabas was a guy kind of minding his own business, and what was his business? Minding other people's business. Oh, that boy's having a hard time. Great mouth. The guy can talk. His heart's in exactly the right place. He just needs a little bit of calibration. Just needs a little bit of adjustment. Just needs a little bit of simmering time. Because the zeal with which Paul was persecuting Christians became the zeal with which he was proclaiming the faith. And already, within a fairly short period of time, he's met with two death threats. Mm, there might be another way to go about doing this. Let's make sure people are trying to kill you because of the gospel, not because you're a jerk. How many know that Paul probably was a bit of a jerk to begin with? I mean, I mean, when you wake up after a day like he had, you just, there's no filter. There's just no filter. Do you know what I mean? So I'm wondering if, because uh, you'll notice at the end of the story there, uh, it says that he um, got Barnabas introducing him, and, 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 and then he went off into into Caesarea and sends him off to Tarsus. Go back home for a while. Get out of the spotlight. Become unknown for a bit. And guess who goes to Tarsus and finds him again when he has a church in Antioch that needs some help? It's Barnabas. Barnabas is the networker. He's the guy who introduces guys to guys. Right? 
He's the one. That, oh, yeah, here's my Rolodex. I got some names on this. Barnabas had a monster Rolodex. If you have watched Mad Men, okay. You could, you know, okay. Um, but anyway, <laughs> he knows people, right? Now, we don't even know how long it was that Paul, Saul, was in Tarsus. We don't know how long he was there. When he tells the story, uh, much later on in, in uh, Galatians, there's, we, there's a period of time of about, uh, about 14 years that we can't account for. Wait a minute, what? What a waste of genius. What a waste of, of intelligence. What a waste of somebody's PhD. 14 years on the backside of the desert? Tarsus and then, then into Arabia and, and we don't we don't even we can't make sense of what what he was going on. You're not in charge of anything here when you wake up with a yes, Lord. So patience is going to be required for all your yeses. How many feel that you've been put on the back burner? Just left to simmer. Maybe in the dark, nobody's going to remember. Nobody's going to remember I'm here. Nobody's going to remember I'm here. Nobody's going to remember I'm here. I got stuff to do. I got stuff to offer. I can be useful in the kingdom. I can do stuff. I can do stuff. And particularly for some of us as we get older in our journeys, we begin to wonder if God has forgotten about us, especially as we see the church getting younger. Is my whole job just to pray? <laughs> Which misunderstands what just praying means? Or do I still have something to offer? You'll please notice with me if you read through the rest of the account of Acts on, the, on, 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 on Paul's life, Saul's life. He's only in public for about ten years. Most of the rest of the time, he's either preparing in the backside of some God-forsaken, no, 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 God-presenced desert. Or he's in prison. And all he can do there is write letters. What a waste of genius. Unless you count like two-thirds of the New Testament as beneficial. Do, do, do you see what I mean? You're just not in charge of anything if you say yes. So maybe you'll be like a Barnabas who knows people who know people and are willing not to be about you. Maybe. One thing I want you to underline in this. Nobody is outside of the reach of grace. I love the story of Saul if for no other reason that when I'm talking to people who trot out their list of disqualifiers why God wouldn't, couldn't, shouldn't want them, nobody gets as down at the bottom of the pile as Saul did. He was killing with celebration Christians. So you're okay. What do you use to disqualify yourself? You sinned a couple of times? You slept around? You had a lifestyle of debauchery? Really? That's all you got? Uh, no. 
not only is nobody beyond grace, but God can use whatever you bring with you when you come. What's your story? Bring it. With a yes, He can redeem it. If He can do this with this guy, through these other guys, <laughs> I just want to start saying yes. Maybe I'm Saul sometimes and have a word. Maybe I'm Barnabas sometimes and know a guy. Maybe I'm Ananias and sometimes just need to come alongside and embrace his brother for the very first time, somebody who was yesterday my enemy. Let's pray. Oh God, we recognize in this story that all of our obediences are critical. And of course we recognize the infilling of the Holy Spirit is essential to any and all of this. Whether we're a Saul type or a Barnabas type, or an Ananias type, or somebody else who's just a, a, a walk-on in the story. I pray, O oh God, that you would help us, empowered by your Spirit, to say yes. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.